and then we saw two black cats big black cats about the same size that picked out a sheep and a lamb and cornered it in the corner of the field and were about to attack seeing is believing and i have no proof of what i saw that day other than what i can describe it was huge it was like the weightlifter of cats welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of britain's big cats we also discuss the bigger picture i'm rick minter and thanks for joining me Welcome to episode 53 of Big Cat Conversations. For this episode, we are back in the English countryside, north of London, discussing some cases which happened in and nearby to the county of Hertfordshire. Our first guest is Matt, and he is a deer stalker and a wildlife photographer. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. You're most welcome, Rick. Great, thanks for coming on, Matt. And before your first sighting, did you ever give the prospect of big cats in the British countryside any thought? Uh, yes, I did. I remember as a early teenager seeing Di Francis's book. And after picking it up and going through it, I was just fascinated by the subject. I don't think up until that point I'd really been aware of it. Being from a country background, a country family, everything was about wildlife. So um, I'd always been interested in Africa or India, the big cat scene and everything else. But for whatever reason, I just was not aware of the thought of there being big cats in the UK. What was it about um, Di France's books that piqued your interest? Did you sort of go with all of it or did you just think it's intriguing regardless of whether it was all possibly true or not? It was definitely intriguing. Uh, I think the 1983 with the Marines really sort of stuck out for me as if they were that serious to bring in such uh, firepower that um, there must be something in it, really. That was sort of a a wow factor for me. Um, And then I just started exploring the topic and uh, I started cutting out a lot of newspaper articles and even wrote to the local newspaper about my interest and i think we were mum and dad were even prepared to go down to uh to devon and cornwall and the thought of walking the the various malls to have a look so the reporter who had written about an article actually responded to me with a letter and wished me all the best good grief what you had to do before the days of facebook and tweets and social media did you ever think it might happen to you for real in the southeast of England? At that time, I was more interested in probably fishing and girls than I was actually ever seeing a big cat. Even though it, it grabbed my attention, it didn't totally occupy my mind. So no, I don't think at that point I ever thought it would truly happen. Good stuff. There's some sense of normality then. Yes. Oh, yes the first time that you encountered something can you tell us all about it the first time would have been somewhere around 2000 2001 i think possibly november december was somewhere around about eight o'clock at night and i was taking the dogs for their normal walk down a, a country lane which is part of the farm that i shot over and now have been the deer stalker on for the last 20 years We were three quarters of the way down the track. There's a grass field on the left-hand side. 
And the current crop on the right-hand side was rape, which was around about a foot tall, I would have thought. And then there's a, a paddock at the bottom, and then there's a fishing lake that goes further along. And then behind that is a large block of forest. I always carry a torch because I always had terriers, and I think you need to know what terriers are up to at night regarding badges and things like that. So I like to see what they're doing. And as the dogs were actually close by me at the time, and I swung round into the rake with the beam, and about 40 yards away, a set of eyes popped up that were different to what I'd ever seen before. They were green in colour. If the rate was roughly a foot, they were certainly a foot above that, which immediately rules out anything like a fox or a badger because of their height. They were spaced too far apart and they had a different shine to them. Foxes are very, very bright, but they are very bright in the sort of uh, yellowy-white kind of colour. These were green. They couldn't have been a, a fallow, which is our predominant species of deer around here, because they weren't tall enough. And obviously that they were too high and spaced too far apart for a fox. But they were forward-looking. Oh, absolutely. Likely to be a carnivore. That would be my first thought, very much so. Um, and at that point, I then noticed my spaniel's reaction. And that she was actually curled round the back of my legs, whining and wanting to go home. Had she picked it up at the same time as you? She wasn't detecting your kind of vibes and your sensitivity. She wasn't reading your thoughts. No, no, I don't think she was reading mine. I didn't really change in my demeanour. Because to start with, you're just analysing what's going on and, and looking to see what it is. The way your mind works and processes things is that you're thinking, well, it's not a fox, it's the wrong colour, they're too high up off the ground, they're too far apart, and everything else is going through your mind. So once I'm starting to do that, and it just sat and looked at us. If you bear in mind 20 years ago, the torches weren't what they are nowadays, and it was only a dog walking torch as well at the time. So um, it wasn't a, a tremendous illumination. Her reaction was very much, whatever is in that, I don't want to know about it, and I want to go home. And which would be unusual behaviour for her, presumably? Yeah, she was fairly steady at everything, and nothing really flapped her or panicked her. Um, so no, I could often shine the beam out there, and she'll be stood there nose to nose with a badger without a worry. So no, other dogs didn't bother her. When was the realisation setting in that this was potentially a big cat? Uh, within about 10, 15 seconds of all that going on, which sort of is not a particularly large amount of time, but that's what I thought it was. I thought, well, with the dogs around here and everything else, I think I would just start walking back now, uh, maybe go and see if I can find a, a better torch. And I did then walk back down to see what it could have been. But by that time, it had, had vanished. Especially my spaniel seeker, her reaction just led me to believe that she was sensing and seeing what I thought I was seeing as well. That was the sort of clarification that I needed. So it didn't make any noise and it didn't make any advances to you. It was just there aware of you and keeping its distance. 
Yep, absolutely. It, it never moved a muscle. Just sat and watched. Was it a complete surprise? Had you heard any gossip about big cat sightings or had anything to potentially alert you to prospect of cats in the area? Yes, there had been numerous sightings in and around the area. Somebody who lived at the top of that lane actually one morning looked out into the same field, but six, seven hundred yards further up and described basically a, a three foot long in the body three foot's worth of tail that curled up at the end, two foot tall cat walking along. Mm. What colour was that one? Black. So a leopard. That was her description. Did this make you primed in some way? Uh, Were you open-minded or did you think, yeah, credible people around here are reporting things? Always open-minded. Yep, absolutely. Having never seen anything, you're still waiting for that confirmation, aren't you, really? Were the terriers with you that night? Yeah, the one terrier I had then, she was with me, and uh, she didn't react at all, which doesn't surprise me with terriers, so she wasn't bothered. She had the heart of a lion anyway, so I don't think she would have been that bothered anyway. But the spaniels, I think, are slightly more delicate in nature in that way, and I've known of other spaniels react like that as well when out shooting. They've come back out of woods or cover crops absolutely petrified and wanted to get back into the car. So did you do any follow-up directly or the next day to that? I had a rough look in that area, but I couldn't find any sign of prints or anything. Okay, and how long before the next one? I think it would have been somewhere around the 2002. That was springtime. The nights would have started to draw out. I think it would have, again, been around 8 o'clock in the evening and walking a different part of the village, heading up towards the main farm. I was walking. As I rounded the corner before there's a 200-yard straight to where the farm entrance is, an animal stepped out of the right-hand hedgerow. The verge there is probably about a metre and a half and stepped into the road. To do that, it took one and a half bounds to hit a third of the way out into the road. It then stopped and looked at me for two or three seconds. At that point, a car was coming round from the opposite direction towards us. It then took another two bounds and was in the opposite side of the road and the hedgerow and gone. So it came out of the hedgerow covered the verge country lane and into the verge and the hedgerow the other side in about three bounds and what color was that one matt that was black and again as it paused in the middle of the road i would have guessed it to be three three and a half foot in the body again two and a half foot or more of tail that just curled up at the end two foot tall and obviously it had quite a stride to cover that distance in so so few steps. What do you think it was doing? I would assume it is just coming from A to B. It's just travelling. Another field after that hits again the block of woodland that um, I was looking at for the first encounter. Mm-hmm. And the left-hand side is again part of the farm, so it just goes out into farmland, agricultural crops some small woodland. My opinion is it was just travelling. 
I doubt it was spooked or anything like that. And it just happened that I was walking along that road at the time. Any dogs with you at that time? No, I was walking up to see someone on the farm. So it was just me at the time. Did it give you sort of helpful confirmation in your mind as to what had happened previously with just the eye shine? Without a doubt. I mean, that was a confirmed sighting. Having spent my whole life in the countryside, I, I know every species of, of deer or fox or badger or anything else are going to look like at every time of the day. And that could only have been one thing. It's a daylight sighting as well. It's um, Even though it would have been that last hour, or maybe not even last hour, a little bit later than that, but uh, it was good light. It was a sunny evening. So in my mind, there was no doubt what that was. Any other sort of distinguishing features that helped that you remember well? The obvious one of the a long tail that curled up slightly. I think that classic leopard look. And the size, but also the, the speed of movement and how it came out of the hedge and how it was able to cover that, which is quite a distance, the verge into the centre of the road and then up the other side in sort of three or four bounds. I mean, that's it's quite a distance to cover. A fox just can't have that sort of stride. So you were able to not just think it was a very large black cat that can kill deer, you felt that is a leopard. Yes, without a doubt. Did it react to you at all? Only to stop and look. And that would have been two or three seconds. At that point, that's when the car, it must have heard the car coming from the other direction and carried on its way. That was it. Another little thing which would have made it stop is that being a bit of a football fan, I was listening to the Champions League match that was going on at the time. So that will tell you its sort of timing. I didn't have um, earbuds in, so it may have heard the radio as I was walking up. Yeah, well, of course, they have got good hearing. You should be a Watford supporter, shouldn't you? Uh, My blood's from Somerset and um, County Durham, so I can claim probably anywhere in between. You weren't necessarily supporting whoever was in the Champions League final. I can't remember. I'm a Manchester United fan, but um, I can't remember who who was playing at the time, which is weird. But no, that was probably wiped clean by that instant. Good stuff. OK, so and again, did you do anything to follow that one up at all? Yes, I went and had a look at that time, but it, it was a dry period. So there wasn't a lot to really find. The hedgerows neither of them have barbed wire fences in or anything like that so it's not like i could look for um for fur there or hair traps so um it was a, a a quick glance to see if there was any sign left over from it but no there wasn't so now you'd had two encounters i think we can call them were you starting to think about more about big cats in your activity as a deer stalker and walking the dogs and things were you sort of on the lookout or getting suspicious and looking out for different signs of potential cats at all always always keeping an eye on the ground as in going out first light or coming back last light i didn't worry too much about that sort of thing i think there's such chance encounters we are heavily footpathed around here so 
a lot of contamination from people and dogs will happen. So the chances, I think, are fairly slim um, unless it wants to travel your very quiet routes all the time. And if it's sticking to a tram line in the field, well, over 3,000 acres, there's a lot of tram lines. Yeah, Okay. so there were more events, weren't there, coming up? I was out one morning and I had a black shape come out of a ditch for no more than two seconds at that, but it was never fully exposed and then dropped back into the ditch line and I didn't see it again. It was very dark in colour. But what I found strange after that is that about five minutes later from going right to left, a small group of fallow were actually flushed from um, a little copse that way. They came across the field very panicked. Normally, if they're travelling, they tend to have a a lead doe and they'll follow in line a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. These came all bunched up and their heads were on swivels. Something really spooked them. So that stood out to me. Okay. I was going to ask you about were you noticing any key changes in deer behaviour. The trouble is you never know what the actual cause of it is, but um, that's a nice example. I think it's interesting to know how sus the deer become. I mean, I I don't think we'll ever fully know, but um, observations like that are helpful because presumably, uh, in some cases, the deer do become alert to these cats around. I know that that was 2006, that little incident, but we would go through very weird spells of no deer activity at all and then we would get some rain almost as if it was washing scent away and those areas that were devoid and quiet would suddenly become active again and it was almost as if any scent marking or something like that that happened was being washed away and the deer relaxed and came back into the area you would go to very productive areas that would be you know very quiet for a month or so and i always thought i wonder if this if if the cats are maybe not well the home range must have been vast and that they were traveling around and that was maybe what was happening with the scent as it started to vanish uh, with the rain maybe that um, the deer became a bit more active in that area it was just a thought process yeah yeah sure and were you getting by now other colleagues and contacts and friends telling you other stories of um, big cats around? Uh, Yes. One of the farm employees, a good friend, a very keen wildlife observer, he drove the the sprayer at the time, and he was, again, not only a mile away from these sort of incidents. He was driving around a field in the sprayer and looked down in front of him into the tram line to see a tawny coloured cat walking along the tram line 40 yards in front of him. In daylight? In daylight, yes. Did it seem to match a mountain lion, a puma type cat? Yes, that's how he would have described it. Again, the similar sort of size I was seeing, but obviously uh, with in uh, brown. As far as he was concerned, it couldn't have been anything else. Again, a very good naturalist, knows his stuff, convinced us. He also had, actually thinking about that, uh, in the forestry block, his dogs chased a rather large black cat one evening. 
there were a few little instances of people seeing strange things or cat-like creatures in and around the area at the time. And then 2006, that was it. I never saw, I haven't seen anything to date. Uh, I don't hear a lot of sightings in the area today um, from other people. It just seemed to all dry up. Were there other sightings of black ones from people or contacts as well? In and around the area, yes, yeah. What do you think made it good? Was it sort of woodland edge habitat, sort of farmland and cropland merging with um, or adjacent to big blocks of woodland and so that sort of edge habitat is where the sort of deer are often going to linger and so a cat's going to patrol that kind of situation? Was it that simple, do you think? Um, I think so, yes. The There's a large block of a thousand acres of uh, mixed woodland, then there all the surrounding area is agricultural land with more woodland mixed in. So it's absolutely perfect habitat. Lots of fallow, a good number of muntjac, despite all efforts on the farm, thousands of rabbits. <laughs> um, not that I think that rabbits are a massive prey. I, I don't know, really. They certainly will, I think, prey on them. But, um, with that many fallow about, and also even roadkill, I mean, you could probably find a carcass, you know, within a five-mile stretch on every road almost because the numbers were that high. There was certainly plenty to hold a cat and uh, and enough cover to hide away in as well. How would a black cat have fared in the open agricultural landscape? Would it have been very obvious and I think it's sort of green pasture they show up against, don't they? But maybe the more mottled cropland, it's not quite as contrasting as we might think. But black would certainly work in the woodland, wouldn't it? We certainly would do, yes. These are uncoppiced hazel, so there's not a lot of light in them. When it comes to agricultural crops, there's only a short percentage of time when they're low. A lot of the time, they, I think they can hide a cat quite easily. Yeah. Yeah, and they could be ratting within them, like they are in sugarcane in India, for example. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and of course the puma is, I think, a cryptic colour in both uh, woodland edge and in cropland, and maybe maybe not green pastures so much. But, I mean, both colours work well enough in the English landscape, don't they, I think, to uh, manage as a predator? Oh, I think so, yes. I mean, a puma would, would fit in really well, more so than the black. Perhaps that's why they're not seen as often as well. Yes, I think that's a good point. I think that there may be proportionally more sighting, more occurrences of pumas, but they're just more difficult to see and for us humans to pick out in the landscape. Mm. As a stalker doing your deer culling job, you were in high seat and other vantage positions. Were you ever thinking that a cat might come along as you were um, doing your work on deer? Yes, there was always a possibility that that could happen, but I never did see anything out of a high seat, it, which is strange considering of the the hours that a stalker works, which is uh, before first light and generally walking back to the Land Rover after last light. So, um, so yes, you would have thought it was the, the perfect time to see something, but I never did. Yeah. Did you ever get any surprises, things turning up that you wouldn't expect beyond the deer doing that job? Only dog walkers that shouldn't be where they were or um, 
people returning home from a, a very late night out. <laughs> that would be about it. <laughs> yeah, which does actually uh, emphasise how careful you've got to be as a deer stalker, doesn't it? And really the issue of taking a safe shot. Yes. Most of my stalking is actually out of a high seat rather than on foot because we do have a lot of footpaths, relatively flat land. Yes, I'm afraid not everybody sticks to where they should be. You have to be extremely careful. But, um, I mean, luckily, I'm sat there with a pair of binoculars, which is my first glassing point of everything. Until everything's verified, the rifle never gets put onto the shooting rail. Are you doing a set sort of systematic culling, reducing numbers to some kind of pattern? Yes. I was always brought up to manage deer for the good of the herd. So I'm shooting anything that is of poor quality in the younger males uh, and the young bucks. And then I'm shooting, because of numbers, if if I get the chance to, to view a, a group of deer and select the best one to shoot, then we always will do. Otherwise, it's doe numbers because of the volumes and at one point that the crop damage that they were doing which people don't seem to realize deer do cause a lot of damage to crops as well as uh, young trees and other vegetation. So even though they are one of my favorite species, they are, I'm afraid, a bit of a pain in high numbers. And how have the numbers fared in your time doing it in the last, say, 15, 20 years? We're seeing a reduction, but that's because of the amount we've shot, I would say, in all honesty. Other factors have come into it to get other landowners to start pulling their weight as well. The numbers are heading in the right direction. Can we talk about your photography then? Because you're following Will Burrard uh, Lucas, who of course is an elite wildlife photographer. And tell us about the camera trap you've designed, because you've got, got a specially illuminated one with a DSLR camera. I have. I think it would have probably been Will's book. Um, even though camera traps have been used for a long time and even the digital SLR versions have been used for a long time but um, I'd never really thought of doing it because there's one thing leaving a 30 pound trail camera out there's a different leaving um, a few hundred pounds worth of digital SLR or more plus lenses which is quite a nervous prospect really but uh, after seeing his book The Black Leopard and then doing a little bit of research elsewhere watching a lot of youtube clips and things there's some fantastic videos out there of certainly america as well doing bobcats and mountain lions etc so i thought i'd I'd really like to do that i went down the route of research looking at a little device called an arduino which is a sort of computer board to uh, try and be the brains of it all and had a code written for it to try and work the camera but sadly i just got false triggers and various other things going wrong it burnt the batteries out on the camera and so in the end i actually will's company camtractions i ordered the sensor and other things off of him so that's what i've done i've made the waterproof housing for the camera myself as most people do um, and the waterproof housing for the flash units and uh, that's where we're at at the moment but you've got some results uh, so far, haven't you? I've, I've got one photo of a black cat, but not a very big black cat. Was that in the garden or something? No. Uh, one of my customers uh, has a moat 
and there's a wall that goes between either side of it and then there's a little drop off and so i was hoping to get badger fox or muntjac walking along the wall and the reflection in the water but my first uh, photo was the moggy from next door but we pretend it's a black leopard Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But yes, I mean, I'm not setting out looking for for cats in that sense. Mm. Uh, It is purely for for British wildlife. But who knows? Yeah. If they're out there, there's always a chance, isn't there? I mean, basically, the benefits of that is you'll get clearer and more vivid and better illuminated photographs. Is that the thinking? Absolutely. It will be colour photos at night. What Will did to get his black leopards and so many of his other things was build a passive infrared sensor that you can program to do a variety of different things, whether it be daytime, nighttime, or a mixture of both. Uh, Take one to six shots per firing, be ready to be fired a second after it's already been triggered. I think there are 30-something combinations in that sensor that you can do. And then you have a a wireless transmitter in the hot shoe of the camera where you used to mount your flash. You have a, a transmitter and, and receivers for the flash. So when the sensor's triggered, it then sends a signal to the flashies to start firing. You know, hopefully, if you've got it all set up, you can produce some absolutely brilliant results. After running trail cameras for 15 plus years, I often thought, God, that could have been a brilliant photo if it wasn't so grainy and not in black and white. So that was sort of after seeing various other things is what spurred me on to do it. The other things, well, we have recently had nationwide, really, but the population of polecats has um, gone up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of us are getting them on our trail cameras. Yeah, absolutely. They've reclaimed territory. And I've had a polecat on a trail camera. So my main objective is to try somehow to get a polecat on it. It's a sign of a healthy environment, I would have thought, a little predator like that. Absolutely. Oh, yes. If the ecosystem can support that sort of mini meso predator, then, yeah, it's a rich ecosystem. It's a good sign just to think that that wonderful little animal is, is starting to come back and in such good numbers to be able to spread out of the hills in Wales to um, find them right across the country now, really. And pine martins next, of course. But, of course, pine martins are being reinforced, aren't they, in certain areas, including Forrester Dean near me. I was going to say, yes, the Forrester Dean. Uh, and if they can combat the problem we're having with the grey squirrels, then that would be wonderful. Let nature do its own uh, checks and balances. Biological control is best. He says, talking to a deer stalker. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I shoot a lot of squirrels because of the damage they do to our songbird population, native trees, and obviously the devastation they've caused with the red squirrel. Um, they are almost, to me, public enemy number one, the grey squirrel. So if we could see such a, a charismatic animal as the pine martin come back and control their numbers, I mean, that would just be wonderful. Sure, yeah. How do you find fellow deer stalkers relate to big cats? A lot of scepticism, really. If we take 
the place that is Facebook and the bickering and nastiness that can go on on that format, then I don't think a lot of deer stalkers want to open up and admit that um, they may or may not have seen anything because they don't want the ridicule. And I can sort of understand where they're coming from, those that don't believe who are in the country fraternity, because you spend your whole life in and around wildlife. You would think if there was something out there, you'd see it, wouldn't you? So I can understand people who haven't seen anything thinking it's a load of rubbish, there's nothing out there. But they do tend to shout down those that will speak up. So I think on the whole, those that may have seen something probably keep their mouth shut and the rest of the deer stalking fraternity probably just don't believe they're out there. The majority of, say, firearm certificate holders are very decent people. I think they are very tolerant of such a, a an animal living in the UK. I don't honestly think there's a deer stalker out that has any intent on going out and shooting one. So, and I think if they're if they're like minded like me, then they will just um, let it live. Um, so, I, I think generally the the attitude towards them would be relatively healthy. I was lucky enough to be shown some footage of one very recently, in fact, by a stalker who had a recording scope and he had it turned on and the eye shine was immense. And of course, he's keeping it very quiet, as is the property. And he had no intention whatsoever of pulling the trigger. Uh, he just, just watched it. And that was at night. Yeah, he wasn't expecting it. And he was uh, almost 200 metres away, but it had a good zoom but it is perhaps going to happen more often now, isn't it, with people having recording functions on their scopes, on their rifle scopes? Yes, certainly with the availability of the night vision. If they're out there and people are out at the same time, then they will meet up at some point. I do get your opinion of, of certainly estates not wishing to be involved in the media and and releasing things to the public i i can understand that because it's bad enough if you're a bird watcher and re- report something that's uh, fairly rare because the twitchers turn up in their droves to go and photograph it or water or see it so imagine what you would do if you said you had a big cat on your land and of course it's not just estates it's all manner of private property and private businesses who've got land and fisheries and kennels and horse stables and you know all manner of private property i mean uh, even a landfill site you know was in a porter cabin of a landfill site operation the secretary was listening into the conversation about you know what was going to happen if we got anything on the camera traps and the manager just said absolutely nothing we're not telling anybody and you thought well a landfill site might not feel as protective and secretive as a, as a private estate but again you know it's about the commotion and the fuss and the interference you might experience if you revealed what was let on what was going on with cats visiting your land I guess we all have it's quite an instinctive protective secretive approach that we tend to resort to when we think about it Mm, oh very much so we'll never know how much evidence of different types is out there that people are hanging on to finally anything further you'd like to say on the subject before we we close it matt i think well i'd just like to say well on a wonderful podcast that you do run it's really interesting to hear a lot of other people's points of view. I do look forward to listening. 
thank you for taking the time to, to put it out there. Okay, well, thank you. And it's obviously very important to hear from people like you. I hope we do get more deer stalkers. We're sort of on the case for looking for, for more deer stalkers and fishermen and people who are out there all the time. And But I do quite accept the point that um, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, particularly to unfamiliar company. But um, we learn, I think, from talking it through because there's, you know, there's huge sort of shades of grey in all of this. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you for those kind words, and uh, thank you for being part of the process. Well, let's hope something else happens. Do keep in touch. If um, I mean, obviously, you've got a, a great chance, and it'd be interesting if your area becomes live again. Well, final point to you. Do you think that your area could have had big cats around at any time? Even just one passing through, you know, one day a year or one night a year, and you and your contacts and colleagues in the area not being aware of it? Without a doubt. 3,000 acres and, what, three sets of eyes. And that's discounting farm workers and everyone else. But if you're saying the people are out there doing that sort of job and more likely in the, in the, the critical times to see one, absolutely, it could pass by several times a year without you seeing it. And there is the dilemma, isn't it? Unless we litter the place with uh, trail cameras or other ways of sensing the signs of the cats, it's very tricky. Because that could be happening, of course. Oh, without a doubt. Good luck with the photography and the new um, camera system. And it's so interesting to hear somebody who's actually purchased equipment from Will Burrard-Lucas, who we heard last uh, episode, and replicating his approach. And let's hope that brings you good reward. Thank you very much, Rick. I will keep you in close contact with everything. Thanks ever so much for your time, Matt. All the best. Our next guest is Simon. He is based in the Epping Forest area, north of London. And this is a bit of a follow-up because we heard briefly about Simon's sighting in episode 43 from John Estelle in the Cockney Cats edition. But Simon is here to explain that encounter himself now, and there's been some recent developments not far from Epping Forest that Simon will brief us on. Simon, so glad we've got you on the show at last. Welcome along. Hi, Rick. Thank you very much for having me. John covered your sighting very well in all his um, briefings on what was going on in and around Epping Forest, but uh, I know it was you and the dogs out for a walk, and you saw something you'll probably never forget. But before that happened... Simon, had you ever given this topic any thought? As a kid, I was fascinated with the Exmoor Beast and the, the saga that was going on down there. But obviously, living in London, I thought it was never, ever going to, I was ever going to see anything like that. It was quite strange then to have my encounter only 12 miles from where I used to live in London. You were interested and you were sort of somebody who thought it was a prospect that there were big cats somewhere in Britain. Even though we're such a, a small line and we've still got places that is, it's still quite wild. And uh, I think it was a bit of a, at that age, a bit of a romantic illusion and uh, hoped it was still possible. Before you encountered something locally, had you heard of any sightings or was it a complete surprise? I think the thing is, I'd, I'd heard of people would say that there used to be a guy that lived in Epping and he had a, a, a black cat in these uh, scrapyard and when we had the big storm in i think was it 87 or something yes the cat got out of the enclosure and escaped other than that round here nothing else okay and they never recovered it as far as the gossip went no 
No. Okay. Well, that does happen, doesn't it? Zoos and wildlife parks do have escapees once some trees blow down and crash through fences. It's fence issues, broken down fence issues, which do lead to escapees. You'd not heard of anybody who'd seen one in and around Epping Forest before then? Not really. It was quite a surprise when, say, we were just out walking the dogs and, and say, we, we come across it. Yeah. Take us through it then, Simon. What happened? It was a uh, 97, 98, sort of all to me, taking the dogs for a walk, just crossed over a field along a path. I just see this black figure, which I first thought it was a black Labrador, because previously we'd found a black Labrador and I'd handed it into the forest wardens. And uh, my, my first response was, oh, it's not that black dog again. <laughs> and then the tail moved and I was thinking, that can't be no dog. Yeah, the tail just flicked. Then I just knew. I just went. That's def- definitely no dog. And it and and the move was too graceful. The move was too feline. How far away was it? About 150 yards. Okay. Did your dogs pick it up? No. Um, at first, nothing, nothing. But as we was walking towards it, the cat has gone from our right to our left across the path that we was travelling along, and then it disappeared into the forest. I had a six-month-old spaniel with me that was on a lead and I had the my terrier with me that was just running around and the terrier went up and sort of sniffed the area where the cat went through and then sort of like come back to me. As we was walking along, the terrier would turn, look back and then after a while she started to growl and bark and then run back to me and then growl and bark and run back to me. I was thinking, oh, I think she's just being a bit on the defensive mm-hmm. but then two, three, four hundred yards further along, I was thinking, am I being followed? It was, it was starting to get a bit nervous. And uh, this, the spaniel pup that I was with was just totally around my feet, couldn't walk. So in the end, I had to pick the pup up, just try and keep walking forwards. But it was, yeah, it was just panic. We was quite concerned. So as, as we, and we get to one section of the forest and the way the fields come in, you have to actually walk through the woods. And I was thinking, oh, here we go. This is this is going to be it, the golden moment. <laughs> but yeah, the dogs were just, well, the, the the terrier was just growling and barking and just carried on. So we, we managed to get through there and just kept walking. And I crossed away from the woodland to keep walking down the other side of the path and just keep going. Didn't really see anything more than that, but I threw the dogs in the car and drove home rather rapidly. And this was a fairly major part of Epping Forest where there are regular dog walkers, regular visitors. It's not like you were in the middle of Hertfordshire, well away from anywhere. So was anybody else about at the time nearby? I had passed, there was a couple of people that was walking towards me um, and they'd passed me by about 20, 30 yards. Once I passed them, then I could see where the cat had crossed. They were unaware of um, anything that had happened nearby. I don't believe that they had dogs with them. They was just out having an, an evening walk and, uh, yeah, just passed me with a nod and, and, and carried on. And then literally 10 yards past them. And that's when uh, that happened. Yeah, so you saw it, they didn't. And it was just that uh, timing suited your view ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And can you give us as good a description of it as you can? Once I've worked out, it's not a blank Labrador. And then just looking at it, it was just a very heavy, thick set black cat it looked very confident very comfortable in its surroundings 
and it looked like it knew where it was going. The movement was too graceful to be a dog, and and the way that the tail moved, that was it was definitely feline. Okay, and compared to that black Labrador that you'd picked up previously, it was longer. It was about the same sort of height, but it was almost like half again. And the tail was just, uh, as I say, the tail was like the length of the body, which was quite a lot longer than a dog's tail. What do you think it was doing? I think it was just having a a, a nice little walk around its territory. Just a walking across the path and as confident as anything. There was no, it, it wasn't in a rush. It wasn't, uh, didn't look like it was any trying to hide away. It just walked across the path. And if you see me, I'm not bothered. Presumably it's helping itself to deer and rabbits and that sort of thing in that area, would you guess? I've been walking up there for 30 years and the decline in rabbits in that, especially in that, that around that field. Um, I mean, it's there virtually non-existent now. Although, of course, Simon, that could be because of the ebb and flow of rabbit populations with the different diseases they get, including Mixie. I mean, we've got so many munchak deer up there and we've got quite a lot of fallow that mooch around up there as well. So good, rich pickings for a cat like that. Oh, absolutely, yes. As a dog walker afterwards, how did it make you feel about walking your dog in that area and knowing there were other dog walkers in that area routinely? I mean, I still go out three to four times a week, be going out again tonight, and it, say we won't, I won't leave the house till about 10 o'clock. I'm still doing it, but I'm just a little bit more careful. <laughs> I definitely take a stick with me. I've normally got one or both of my sons with me. They've always joked and they said, oh, don't worry, it's at least you'll know that we can run faster than you. So <laughs> <laughs> that definitely makes one of us feel better. I think the joke was that uh, if anything happens, as long as you understand, we're all going to Florida. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, uh, of course, you're walking in the evening at a good time. Well, you saw it at that sort of time in, a, in early dusk, did you as well? Yeah, I think it was October-ish, November possibly. And it was just as it was getting dark. During the day, the forest is absolutely alive. There's hundreds and thousands of people that are in the forest. Um, and then you go down there every night and then there might you might see a couple of people on mountain bikes uh, and the, the very occasional dog walker. So it's um, very people up there in the evening, a few and far between. Different environment, yeah. Uh, John mentioned on the episode, and maybe we could have it in more detail from you now, that you chatted to Epping Forest sort of wardens uh, informally about it. Now, I don't think we should necessarily drop them in it, but they did acknowledge the fact that they knew there were big cats around. Is that right? Well, I think the the guy that I used to speak to has subsequently left. So I, I don't really know his name anyway. So it was it was just, hello, and how are you, and, and whatever. But he's, um, I said to one of the guys, have you ever heard of any sightings up here? And he, he, oh, no, absolutely, don't be silly. And then spoke to his mate as he, this one walked away. And he just like sort of smiled and said, oh, he said, why's that? And I said, well, I think I see something. He said, well, what did you see, the black one or the puma with the cubs? And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He said that as they was driving along, um, just doing through a, a routine patrol through the forest one evening, and they just turned, and then there was they they literally come across the mum and the two cubs on a, a kill just in the middle of this little track in the middle of the forest, and he said they just uh, reversed back out and uh, let them carry on. 
this podcast isn't here to um, berate people in authorities and people with responsibilities for managing the countryside because they're between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? We know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very tricky thing. It's good to talk it through and um, realise the challenge it presents to all of us. One of them did say, say on another conversation, they said, uh, if we got the chance to shoot one on site, then we would. But it's, uh, I know some of them carry uh, rifles with them because of the deer. But yeah, I don't know whether they can actually get away with saying, oh yeah, we can we can shoot one of them because officially they don't exist. And also, obviously, a safe shot. And of course, as you say, in the daytime, plenty of people about anyway. So yeah. Yeah, you don't know who's going to be marauding around the corner or any dogs nearby that suddenly appear. Did you notice any change in the dog's behaviour afterwards or have you ever seen any similar behaviour without seeing a cat that you thought, hmm, this is a bit like when they were reacting to the potential cat being close up? With the terrier, I mean, she was a typical terrier and uh, she was always out trying to hunt something or trying to fight with something. So to see her act in that way after the, the, the sighting that we had, it was just not her. But then, say, a few years later on, we've got we've got different dogs and I've, I've only seen it once or twice and, and the dogs have not really been their self. I mean, the, the, the two that I've got now, they're, they're quite big and confident dogs on one or two occasions that they've been rather clingy up there and it's normally if they see a rabbit or a fox and it's straight away they're, they're chasing off after it mm-hmm. it was like they knew something was there or they could smell it or sense it and yeah i couldn't i was just a dumb chauffeur i was thinking well you've never really done this before what about chatting informally with other dog walkers you bump into or other people you've got to know there have you heard of other sightings I did speak to, there was a, a friend of mine who was picking her daughter up from the stables and I, I spoke to someone at the stables and they said that they had something, they had a horse uh, break a leg in a field and then the the vet had to come out and put the horse down. But they covered the horse over with this very heavy blanket. The guy come out in the night to check the horse and the blanket had been pulled off. So he, he covered the blanket over again and went in. And then as he come back out again, just think, oh, no, I don't don't like this. I'm just going to go and check again. Mm-hmm. He sees something and he, he said it was, he thought it was a black dog. And I said, Is, did you think there's any chance that it could have been a black cat? And he said, well, I don't know. He says, but we don't really have them in this country, do we? And I said, well, I said, it's a, I had a sighting not far from here. And then he, he sort of then went into the fact that they had about five or six cats around the stables and that have been whittled down to one and the one didn't like leaving the house now. So, and I said, well, that could have been something that they were on the menu. Yeah, exactly. I know you're networking with other people and stalkers locally with John and there's been some recent sightings that you've got to hear about um, from these people. I know you won't want to give the precise locations away and we quite understand that, but um, can you tell us what you can about those recent events? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a friend of mine. He does some pest control just off of the side of the A12. And he's been on that land up there for 20-odd years. In those 20 years, never seen anything. That largely um, culling foxes, is it, in that work? He does uh, foxes and deer and uh, the rabbits as well. Yeah, for an estate, for private farms or estates or both? 
farms, golf courses, schools. I mean, he's, the, the areas that he's got is like thousands of acres. And he gets recommended to the next person and the next person. That, and it just built up over year after year. He was out one evening looking to cull some deer. He see this deer run out into the field. He was watching it for a thermal spotter. He sort of just watched it thinking, well, it was a bit strange. And then the next thing is he see another an image and he see it's, it was just like watching something from National Geographic. This cat was skulking through the undergrowth. He said, I was just absolutely mesmerised. And then I realised that I was still in the forest and I've got this cat 25, 30 yards away from me. So he said, I said, oh, then I walked out into the field to try and feel a bit more confident. Then five, six weeks ago, he, uh, he called me back and he said he's had a, a daytime sighting and uh, he watched it for about 10 minutes through, I mean, the binoculars that he's got are a lot of fortune and he, he could see every detail on this cat and he said it was absolutely amazing. It was stunning. Mm. What colour? Uh, black. He said it was huge. One of your other podcasters have said that it was like the weightlifter of cats, and he 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 said he said it looked if, if like the cat had a bodybuilder, then this was it. He said it was huge. Those were normal binoculars, very good quality, good optics, but no recording function on them, presumably. On his ones, he he has got a, a recording function, but he, he said I never used it because I never thought I'd ever see something like that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that from other people too. Uh, yeah, he would have had some great footage, but uh, then again, with the with the binoculars, he just sat on this hill, looking down, watching this cat a hundred or so yards away, just walking away from him. The cat didn't have a care in the world. And he said it was just an absolute privilege. Does he think it could have been the same one, or was he able to tell the colour in the in the spotting scope, the nighttime thermal? He presumably wasn't totally sure of the colour. Just see the thermal image of it. Um, he, he wasn't able. To, in his head, he, he said he was thinking puma, um, but afterwards, and he just said, he said, oh, I don't know. So, but then seeing the black one, uh, he he told the farmer and said to the farmer about it, and the farmer was just very, oh, okay, cheers. It's not his first rodeo with the with the cat, I think. You never know, but you suspect, don't you? Often when they're a bit um, uh, non-committal about it and are not too surprised. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to get John permission to go up there and, and have a little look around or even put a trail cam, but the, uh, he said it's not even worth asking the farmer because the farmer said, no, he said, that you keep that to yourself. Don't, don't say that to anyone. So that's the reason why we keep the location so vague. And did he just think it was, um, again, moving from A to B, not in hunting mode or anything, just you know, walking across his territory? Or did he, did he say it was up to anything? No, he just said it was just walking around, just walking along parallel in a hedgerow. And uh, he said it, it could have been just walking. There was a, a pond like that sort of way. He said so it might have been going for a drink or, or anything. But yeah, he said it was just meandering along. This was about eight o'clock in the evening. It was only a couple of weeks ago. We're recording this in um, early June. So that would have been May uh, 2021, presumably. Yeah, I'd say, uh, say early May a successor to a different generation from the one you saw a while ago. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when he phoned me, he was he was very excited. He went, I've seen it again, I've seen it again. Has he got other land? He could do trail cameras on himself. He's got uh, a lot of land. One of the reasons why a few of the, the farms control the deer up there is because of the, the issues with poaching and, and then the, the undesirables that come along with it. So 
he don't want to upset the people that he does the work for. So that's the reason why he just uh, he sticks to what he's there to do. And what about other networking? That's great to have such a such a sort of good contact. Frustrating that you can't use cameras, but it's understandable. But of course, that, people like that could try and get um, some kinds of evidence, couldn't they, by looking for field signs like prints and um, and deer carcasses that could be checked and whatever. So they're, they're still useful eyes and ears on the ground. I think you said about 15 years ago that there was rumours of a, a lynx sighting and he found a paw print that he believed was a lynx or a cat and he said it was he had a and he had a, an air rifle with him and he said that it was the, the the actual pad was the the, the paw mark was the size of a, an air gun tin so it was like about four inches across so it was he said there was no no visible claws so he so he's put two and two together and come up with that so but other than that he said there was no proof and this um area presumably it's pretty close to the large towns that are in in around epping area it's not far from big centers of population no not at all not at all it's um yeah i mean there's there's lots of little villages scattered all around there but yeah it's only a few miles from the m25 yeah but the cats seem to be keeping themselves to themselves as they largely are elsewhere yeah no they say so they've got so much room and there's so much food up there as well it's uh, there's 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 no reason for them to go anywhere else yeah sure Okay. You keep in touch now with John and you've got a good network and you can follow things up and, um, um, well, you're seeing the value of teamwork, presumably, in, in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, so it's great going out with John. Um, and then we, we've been around a few uh, few sites and uh, uh, had a look at a couple of areas. We've got a few on our to-do list. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, yeah, any, any information that we get, we sort of then try and... Uh, get out and, and have a little look around with the time that we get. So considering we've got quite a bit of time when we had lockdown. Sure. What are your thoughts generally about big cats living in the wild in Britain? What's your sort of attitude to them and to the whole issue? I love the idea of it, to be honest. It's it's nice to have something there. I mean, it's when people talk about rewilding, it's already happened and it's working well. It would be better if the powers that be actually notified people so people could then keep their kids a little bit closer and and if you're forewarned you're forearmed i think the challenge is that if you put signs up or if the wardens were and rangers were open about it the human reaction might cause more hassle and bother and disturbance than not knowing about it it's such a dilemma isn't it so tricky at least if you know then you can decide what you're going to do and then everyone can still enjoy these these areas mm. um but you, you you've just got a little bit more a little bit more knowledge about what's out there you're content with the cats being around is there anything that could change your attitude change your mind about it if there was an incident that was an unfortunate one or or you knew that your dog had been predated by a big cat is there anything that could change your mind i <laughs> i'd like to think it wouldn't change my view if anything happened to the dogs, I would be uh, rather upset. But I want to say I've, I've seen it once in 30 years up there. It's not going to stop us from going up there. Yeah, OK. Well, thanks ever so much for um, reinforcing everything that John said previously and, and the update, you know, the, the recent events. So anything else you want to say before we sign off, Simon? Well, I, I did have 
some years ago i think it was 2004 mm-hmm. i had a, a another sighting um we was in scotland at the time and we actually see the body of a cat on one of the main roads whereabouts in scotland i couldn't tell you but we, we actually come around a bend and there was a a huge black cat stretched out in the inside lane and both myself and my wife see it and and it was a um what on earth moment why didn't you stop and <laughs> pluck some hair from it or was it too difficult to stop it was i say this was what almost 17 years ago my son was a baby in the back of the car and there was no real safe place to stop my wife said there's no way that you're going to like park and run back there and whatever so it was just unfortunately one of those missed moments and it, and it wasn't even a, a camera phone time then that was when uh, things were a lot simpler do you think it was likely to be a black leopard or similar yes it say it was just a absolutely huge black cat and it was just completely stretched out and it was taken up from the inside shoulder to the next white line on the road i want to say it was on the a9 but I can't guarantee it because we were driving all around Scotland when we went up there for a short break. The A9 is a major north-south route, isn't it, on the um, yes. mid-east part of Scotland? Yeah. Wow. Other car drivers would have seen it as well. You couldn't miss it. Uh, couldn't miss it. Do you think it had been hit by a car as a road traffic accident crossing the road and, or do you think there was another uh, reason for it? I think it was definitely hit by another vehicle. Was it intact or was it... Um... Essentially, it looked like it was asleep. Uh, yeah. A perfect specimen in theory. That would have been, if you could have get the picture of that, that would have been front page anywhere. Yeah. How long ago again? Uh, 2004. That would have been the January 2004 that we was there. Now, you're reminding me that... Um... I had a listener about um, three or four months ago contact me out of the blue and email me to say his parents years ago, I think he was a youngster at the time, and I don't think he was with them, but um, this is a, a major family tale, hence his interest. Um, they were walking in the wilds of Scotland, remote from anywhere, and the two of them just stumbled upon a dead, intact puma mountain lion. Oh, wow. They were amazed, but... For reasons that they now regret, they didn't do anything. It was days before camera phones. Don't know that they had a camera. Don't think they had a camera on them. It was a great shock to them, of course. But um, they didn't think to take a pluck a bit of hair for DNA, or which is probably the easiest thing, rather than carrying uh, something off. You know, easy to, to just pull some hair out and you've got a DNA yeah. potential or um, get a, a tooth or something, uh, or a claw that would be DNA-able. Uh, yeah, I think they sort of just were so astonished. They didn't feel that, oh, let's tactically, you know, try and prove it and take something away from it. But they actually were confronted by a, a dead body in the middle of the wilds of Scotland. And what an amazing situation. And it lived with the family. It's gone down in the family's history, hence the ongoing interest. Just shows you, doesn't it, how different people react. I think they, you know, having thought about it, they realised they missed a chance. Yeah, your one, you couldn't stop anyway. That, but it must have been frustrating. Oh, it was uh, say as a for being very interested in that sort of thing as a kid, 
and then having essentially like a, the Willy Wonka golden ticket <laughs> as you're driving past it, and you just can't stop. It was, it was quite frustrating. Well, you can always um, ask a freedom of information request about what happened to a large black cat in uh, wherever it was and uh, send it to whichever constabulary area is of Scotland. Of course, it would depend on whether they had any records and files. If it's not on file, there's no records to look up, is there? I just wondered if, if any of these do actually make records or it's just disposed of straight away, out of sight, out of mind. There's a few people that I've spoken to over the years that were, let's say, I mean, there was a guy who was a stalker in Hampshire and he supposedly had one of the cats brushing up against the ladder on his high seat. He was sitting up the top of it and the cat was just scratching its back on the on the bottom and he said it was just absolutely amazing. He had a high-caliber rifle with him. He said, and shooting it was the furthest thing from his mind. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that shoot, I mean, that are conservationists as well. And the fact that they get to see something like that, I mean, there's going to be the odd one or two that think that look good above me fireplace. I'd say definitely in uh, being the minority. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, thank you for that um, extra snippet. That was a great bonus to hear about that. And um, right I'll repeat the question. Is there anything else you'd like to say on the subject before we leave it? Anything we haven't touched on? I, th- I think you've had everything there, Rick. So thank you very much. Good value. Yeah, well, really good to hear from um, Epping Forest area and a bit of Scotland as well. Anything else occurs, we'll be on the case with you and John to have you back. But meantime, thanks ever so much for coming on the show, Simon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Many sightings and encounters that we hear about tend to fit in certain categories, such as a dog walker or a horse rider's encounter or a car driver or a lorry driver's sighting. But this one coming up is in a class of its own, or perhaps it starts a wild camping category. We are fortunate that Andrew, who is based in Hertfordshire, has offered to share it with us. So Andrew, we are all agog and thanks for coming on the show. Hi Rick, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for coming. And before this event, were you aware of big cat sightings at all? And did you have any views on the subject? Yeah, I had heard about them. I'd heard of a few locally. I like the idea, but had no no idea, no knowledge about it. So can you tell us what happened? And it was some um, late summer 2020. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was around August, September. Me, my girlfriend and my dog went on a camping trip. In um, the local woodlands, it's a quite big woods, about 5,000 acres, but roads in between separating it. We got to our camp spot quite late, just as it was getting dark, set up our hammocks, um, quite invisible to people, just two dark green hammocks in the middle of the woods. So, yeah, quite hard to spot to the person. Had a bit of dinner and uh, went to bed. The dog was in the hammock with me, and I got woken up quite late. I'd say it was around four o'clock in the morning by um, my dog, Nessa, shaking, um, barking, her doing little whimpers, and I didn't know what was going on at first. So I'm trying to calm her down, and I look up, and there's something sitting in the tree above us. And... It was it was quite dark, right on the edge of the woods, next to a field that 
I actually call the deer field because there's there's always a herd of deer asleep under the corner of the tree. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've been woken up, looked up, and it was pitch black. But all I could see was the silhouette. But this was like nothing I'd ever seen before, nothing you'd expect to see in a tree above you in a UK woodland. And yeah, it was silhouette of a big cat. Yeah, and your other half was sleeping in a hammock to the side of you, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I tried to get her attention. She didn't have a clue. She slept through the whole thing. When the dog started to set off, what did you think was uh, happening? Did you just think it needed to get out and go for the go for a wee or something? Well, in the past on camping trips, she's barked at badgers and deers have wandered to our campground in the night. So I just presumed it was something like that. Gosh, what happened next? How long did it take you to realise what this shape in the tree was? Well, it was quite quick. It was probably only a matter of seconds from waking up to spotting it. And obviously the dog was terrified, shaking. So I kept hold of her, trying to calm her down. And I tried to get my um, torch out of my pocket. Obviously one hand trying to hold on to the dog, a bit of a panic. And it just wasn't happening. I, I couldn't get my hand in my pocket, get my torch out. And I tried getting my phone, my torch, and nothing was working. It was just like I couldn't function properly. So um, in the end, I, I remember just looking up at it and saying, come on, mate, F off now. And um, just tried calming the dog down. Um, and next thing, I looked up and it was gone. Phew. Yeah. What, did it jump down, climb down? What, what, what do you think it did? I didn't see it leave. I, I was trying to calm the dog down and it was just gone. Do you think the dog was clinging onto you? Do you think the dog would have jumped out of the hammock and raced away and then it would have been cut? No, I, I, I held on to her in case, but I don't think she was going anywhere. She knew she was safe with you. She wasn't going anywhere. She was petrified. Yeah, good grief. How were you emotionally? Were you were you scared of yourself or the, the dog or both of you or did you not know what to make of it? It took probably a good day or two for me to really take hold of what had happened Mm. yeah it didn't didn't hit me for a while i was kind of laughed it off at first and then yeah it was like two days later i'd say i was really just like wow did it make any noise no i didn't hear anything and how high up was it i'd say the tree was probably 10 foot off the ground maybe a bit less yeah the fallen tree i put a bit of a slant so it was on the top of that, above you, looking down? Yeah, a bit, bit of an angle, not directly above me, but it was higher, higher than me and looking down as, yeah. There was no torchlight or spotlights to shine at the eyes, eyes, so you presumably didn't see any eye shine, but did you see the eyes at all? No, it was, um, it was literally just a silhouette. The only light was coming from behind it for a gap in the wood. How would you describe it as best you could? It was just so much bigger than anything I'd expected to see. It was just really long and bulky and not like I think you'd expect to see in the woods in England. I like my documentaries and all of that sort of stuff. And you just couldn't describe it. It was just the shape of a big cat. You could just see it sat there with its tail just curled up behind. So it wasn't moving much when you saw it and when the dog was setting off. It was just watching you. Yeah, just sat there watching us. And what sort of size would you say if you had to compare it to a Labrador dog or something? 
yeah, medium large dog, but longer. So yeah, you didn't get your torch, didn't get a phone, and but did you then wake up and think, well, I'm going to have to stay awake for a bit at least to make sure it's not circling around the camp or still around, or did you feel actually it has gone? You know, I can get back to sleep, or how did you feel in the next sort of half hour or so? I do remember having that thought, but it didn't happen. I just fell back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, did the dog fall back to sleep? Do you think? I, I don't know. To be honest, I'm I'm quite a good sleeper though. I, I was I was back out. There was no noise. All I heard was the dog. Yeah, it got the message anyway. <laughs> yeah. You were we're saying on emails that you and your dog both snore, and I was saying back to you, I wonder <laughs> if it if that attracted it in the first place, and even if the snoring, the vibrations of the snoring attracted it, because it thought it was, say it was a black leopard, uh, you know, it, it thought it was another leopard doing a sort of soaring noise, which they tend to do, which could sound a bit like snoring. I don't know if I had been at that moment, but I'm always getting moaned up by my girlfriend for snoring, <laughs> and the dog's constantly snoring, so I would not be surprised. Well, the noise at least could have attracted it. Yeah, it's very possible. Did you get enough of a sense of whether it was a black one or a or a brown one? Or could you not even tell that if it was silhouetted? It's difficult to know. I couldn't tell you anything about colour, no. No, it's a complete silhouette. Yeah. D- did the dog calm down straight away? No, it, it took a while. She was all right in the end, but it took a while for her to calm down. And there was no meat smell. We were talking about this before we turned the mics on, and it's not like you'd had a barbecue uh, and there was a meat smell. No, I'm pretty sure there was no meat at all. We uh, just had a little stove. There was no fire, no barbecue, little um, gas stove, and I think probably a, a little pasta packet thing. It's so difficult to, to judge, but did you get the impression it was looking at you with intent, or do you just think it was curious? Or are you not prepared to guess? Like you say, it's very hard to judge, but I don't, I don't want to know what could have happened. But I thought it was after the dog. But yeah, it could, could have just been interested in my snoring. Never know. Yeah, did, did you ever notice any change in the dog's behaviour since then? Has that affected the, the dog at all, or was it just that one-off incident? She is a bit anxious at times anyway, but she hasn't been back to that bit of words so i can't comment on that too much yeah she's she's a bit funny at times anyway but no nothing too noticeable and what about you do do you carry on sleeping in hammocks and do doing wild camping and not too bothered about um, potential cats just maybe a little bit more cautious keep my eyes peeled a bit more keep my eyes out now just in case (laughs) what did your girlfriend make of it i hope she believed you did she she says she believes me at least yeah (laughs) It doesn't really worry me much for my own safety or anything like that. Maybe a little bit for the dog. I'll keep an eye on her a little bit more. But it won't stop me going to the woods or anything like that. I mean, you haven't been back to that exact spot, have you? Would you advise people to be cautious if they went back there? I'd maybe tell them just to give them a heads up. But I don't think they'd need to be cautious. It's just so they don't panic. Very, very slim chances of them seeing it. Have you heard of any sightings in that area since? No, not since. I have heard of in the area in the past. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, big woods, loads of deers. What's your general attitude towards big cats in Britain now? Yeah, I like the idea of it. I think it's good. I think they should just be left alone. 
help everything regrow and rewild. I don't know, it was almost exciting in a way, thinking they could be around the woods. Yeah. Incidentally, did you, the next morning, look for any paw prints or any signs of the cat at all? No, I, I wish I did. I, I didn't think about it until probably a week or so later. We just got up, packed up and went on our way. Yeah, I wish I had a look around a bit more. Love to see one again at one point, but it's very unlikely. Yeah, it's also, um, it's unusual that you don't know what colour cat you saw. That is pretty rare, but I think people would quite understand that if, if it was just a silhouette in the woods at night. It had a decent long tail. Oh yeah, definitely wasn't a lynx. A puma or a panther, basically. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for making Hertfordshire sound very wild again. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks ever so much, Andrew, and um, keep us posted if anything else happens. All the best. Will do. Okay, nearly finished now, so we will sign off with our words of the week, and we have the term wicked problem. A wicked problem is basically a topic which is inherently slippery, with no clear solution and no consensus about what the main issues are, so no clear-cut answers to those issues. On the web there are many definitions, all pretty similar, but the Wikipedia definition of a wicked problem is a problem that is difficult or impossible to solve because of incomplete, contradictory and changing requirements that are often difficult to recognise. Many subjects in real life and in politics are just naturally slippery and could be classed as wicked problems. And as a consequence, governments and public bodies tend to avoid them or skirt around them because the approach is unclear and the costs could be open-ended and unaffordable. Perhaps big cats living wild in Britain is a good example of a wicked problem, although not everyone would agree it's a problem to start with. It's also why, when we discuss attitudes to big cats here in Britain on the podcast, I like to emphasise that there is no wrong answer. And we won't necessarily see the topic in exactly the same way. So, there's our words of the week, wicked problem. Okay, news about our next episode, because we have the company of Darren Naish. He's a zoologist and he runs the famed blog Tetrapod Zoology, or Tet Zoo. He's also author of Hunting Monsters, and he's a leading expert on dinosaurs. Amongst other things from Darren, we will learn about the puma, the leopard and the jaguar species that were in Europe back in Pleistocene times. So it's a deep history of Britain and Europe's big cats next time. Righto, time to wrap up now, so thanks again to our Hertfordshire and Essex guests, Matt, Simon and Andrew. Thanks everyone for listening in. Take care of yourselves and hope you can join us next time on Big Cat Conversations. Bye.